That probably is the seed of this more than anything. You know, how, how do you try to write about, I mean, for lack of better terms, a hero's journey, but take his guns away, take his sword away? You know, how do you do it in a, in a different kind of way? Take that whole, you know, thing about the woman as an object, yeah. as his honor. You take that away. Like, how do you write that? Why write about slavery in 2019? And when you write about it, how do you defy the popular conceptions about slavery that readers have in their heads? How do you make the subject new? It took ta Coates, author of the best-selling nonfiction works The Beautiful Struggle, We Were Eight Years in Power, and Between the World and Me, 10 years of writing and meticulous research to produce his first novel, The Water Dancer. And in that time, he unearthed some incredibly powerful answers to those questions. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Dr. Charles Johnson, author of 24 books and winner of the 1990 National Book Award for his novel, Middle Passage, sat down with Coates in October 2019 to discuss The Water Dancer at Benaroya Hall. Just weeks after publication, it was already a New York Times bestseller and Oprah book club pick. The novel follows the life of Hiram Walker, born into slavery on a Virginia plantation. In the book, Harriet Tubman says of the Underground Railroad, quote, This is war. Soldiers fight in war for all kinds of reasons, but they die because they cannot bear to live in the world as it is. This is Sal on Air. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow, y'all really filled this joint up. This is crazy. Whoa, um, thank you, thank you for waiting in the rain and in the cold. You know, I just came from LA, so. <laughs> so I landed here, I said, ain't nobody coming tonight. <laughs> but look at this, thank you. This is, um, this is really, really special. Um, I, I wanna thank the city of Seattle. Uh, I have written four books and, um, I've come to visit Seattle four times, so for every book. Um, I believe this is my third time uh, for, for the Arts and Lectures series, so this is just absolutely, absolutely incredible. I really, really appreciate you guys' support. Um, so this time, the fourth time around, um, this is for uh, my novel, The Water Dancer. And this is, um, while it's my newest book, to me it's like my oldest book, uh, because I've been working on it for 10 years now. Um, I actually had started on this before Between the World and Me, uh, before almost everything that's in We Were Eight Years in Power. So it's a great, great pleasure to, to share it here. Um, the Water Dancer is, and Jesus, you know, one of the things that happens when you write fiction is you have to worry about spoiling people. <laughs> so I really don't know what to do, you know, but I feel like I'm in week four uh, of a seven week tour and I was a lot more merciful uh, in week one. <laughs> so week four, if you didn't go to Elliott Bay, or you didn't get to hear Joe Morton's beautiful rendition of it, I guess, yeah, he's incredible, isn't he? He's absolutely incredible. That was my choice, I picked that. I just want, I want credit for that. <laughs> um, I think we can say this. Um, at the end of the book, there's still slavery. 
So I guess that's not too much of a spoiler. <laughs> um, yeah, our main character doesn't solve slavery, so that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> but the main character is, is an enslaved uh, uh, African-American uh, by the name of Hiram Walker. He has a, a preternatural uh, photographic memory, um, and he can remember all the small things in their particular details. Uh, the only thing that he actually struggles with uh, is remembering the thing that is most intimate to him, and that is his mother. What he is aware of is that his father, who is the owner of the plantation, uh, sold away his mother when he was a child. And he knows this because the community of enslaved people around him have never let him forget the fact that that happened. But as Hiram describes in, in the novel, whereas most things he remembers come to him in colors and shapes and song, when he thinks of his mother, all he sees is words. He can't see her face. And this is a, a, a particularly vexing issue for Hiram, particularly as a, as a young person, because as a young person, um, he is searching for somebody to look up to. And when we find him early in the novel, he's actually looking up to his father, who is a slaveholder and the master of the plantation called Lockless, where he lives. Where we pick this story up, it is very, very brief reading, and then I'll um, be in conversation with Charles Johnson. It's just an honor to be here with Charles Johnson, by the way. I'm, I'm gonna try not to drool too much over him, but this is, this is absolutely tremendous. I read Middle Passage when I was back at Howard, um, and I'll talk more about the influence of that. But before we get to that, um, we picked this up with Hiram having been called up uh, from the fields and brought into uh, the house of Lockless to work in the main house. And he believes he's there uh, because of his memory and because of his particular genius, and that's sort of true. But what he's coming to recognize is that there's genius all around, and that's uh, in all of the enslaved people, and that's changing some of the views he has. As I learned the house and began to read and began to see more of the quality, I saw that just as the field and its workers were the engine of everything, the house itself would have been lost without those who tasked within it. My father, like all the masters, built an entire apparatus to disguise this weakness, to hide how prostrate they truly were. The tunnel where I first entered the house was the only entrance that the tasks were allowed to use, and this was not only for the master's exaltation, but to hide us, for the tunnel was but one of the many engineering marvels built into Lockless, so as to make it appear powered by some imperceptible energy. There were dumb waiters that made the sumptuous supper appear from nothing, levers that seemed to magically retrieve the right bottle of wine hidden deep in the manor's bowels, cots in the sleeping quarters drawn under the canopy bed, because those charged with emptying the chamber pot must be hidden even more than the chamber pot itself. The magic wall that slid away from me that first day and opened the gleaming world of the house hid back stairways that led down into the Warrens, the engine room of Lockless, where no guests would ever visit. And when we did appear in the polite areas of the house, as we did during the soirees, we were made to appear in such appealing dress and grooming so that one could imagine that, the, that we were not slaves at all, but mystical ornaments, a portion of the manor's charms. But I now knew the truth 
that my brother Maynard's folly, though more profane, was unoriginal, that the masters could not bring water to boil, harness a horse, nor strap their own drawers without us. We were better than them. We had to be. Sloth was literal death for us, while for them, it was the whole of their ambition. It occurred to me then that even my own intelligence was unexceptional, for you could not set eyes anywhere on Lockless and not see the genius in its makers, genius in the hands that carved out the columns of the portico, genius in the songs that evoked even in the whites the deepest of joys and sorrows, genius in the men who made the fiddle strings whine and trill at their dances, genius in the bouquet of flowers served up from the kitchen, genius in all of our loss, genius in Big John, genius in my mother. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, I have waited a long time and eagerly for this conversation with this distinguished gentleman. Um, I have several questions for you. And we will, oh, I got a lot of questions. We will get questions from you guys, too. And you, you inspired a question with me when you were reading that passage just now, because that really struck me when I read it. The slaves learn the skills that the masters had abandoned because they wanted leisure, right? Mm -hmm. That is literally Hegel's master and slave, you know, dichotomy. The slave learns the skill and so they are prepared to be independent. Mm -hmm. But I want to start off with an easier question. <laughs> we can start there if you want. We'll come back. Okay, okay. all right, okay. What inspired you to write The Water Dancer? Oh, man. Um, so the literal process of this is I finished my first book, and my editor, and along with my, um, along with my agent, felt like I should make a go of fiction, and that's what they told me. Um, but that's about 2% of the battle, because fiction about what? Um, and I wasn't too clear on that. <laughs> And for whatever reason at that point in time, I was doing a lot of reading about slavery in the Civil War, and I, I became entranced not just with the historical facts, but with depictions of heroism, um, depictions of gallantry, uh, depictions of, of glamour. And I, I could not for the life of me understand how it was that those who led the army of enslavement had not just somehow triumphed in the historical war or the war for the historiography, but that they had triumphed in the war for aesthetics too. Um, it was the army of enslavers, you know, that, that, that had the glamour. And I'm, I'm talking about like depictions of Robert E. Lee, you know, as this gallant kind of Arthurian knight. 
Uh, I'm talking about the state of Tennessee uh, having more statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest than you can count. Nathan Bedford Forrest who founded the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I'm talking about Gone with the Wind being what? After the Bible, the biggest you know, selling work of fiction you know, in, in American history. Um, no, it's true though. It's true. Um, I'm talking about Birth of a Nation, you know, basically you know, being the foundational text you know, for all film, and, and I, I just, so there was, there was an, almost an artistic war, you know, or, or in a larger sense, the war of beauty that, that had been won. And when I started digging into it, and, and Hiram tries to deal with this a little bit, what, what I started, when I started digging into it, I really began to question not just how that happened, but why we award certain stories um, those kind of, you know, accolades and, and plaudits and other stories, not why we have a, a gaze or a temptation for certain things. If, if, and forgive me, because this is actually a little bit of a complicated question. So I'm sorry for going off a little bit. Um, but one of, one of the things I, I really was interested in when I was writing this book is, you know, in many ways it's a very typical adventure story. But there are all sorts of assumptions that, that come with that about machismo and manhood, you know what I mean, and all of these issues. And I think sometimes even among black people, we hunger for a kind of inversion of what white aesthetics in, the, in this country have often been, you know, in terms of what, what heroes are. Um, Could you explain sure, sure. In the inversion? Yeah, 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 and I'll tie this back to, you know, uh, uh, the Civil War. So think of the Civil War, you know, you got a guy with a gun on a horse, right? Like all the heroes are guys with guns on horses. You know what I mean? And you know, half of you know, Clint Eastwood's films, you know, well not half, I shouldn't be that extreme. But a number of Westerns revolve around, you know, some Union soldier raped and killed my wife, guy with a horse comes in, avenges, you know, the killing. And, and I think, <clears throat> for whatever reason, and I think it's probably part of it is the, the fact of the centrality of rape in slavery and thus the shame some of us feel over that fact, I think a lot of times there's a need to construct a counter myth that puts a black man on a horse with a gun. Um, and what became clear to me was that like, even in, in looking at that, that, that aesthetics war, it would not be enough to erase white and put in black, yeah. Yeah. you know? And, and, and that, that, that probably is the seed of this more than anything. You know, how, how do you try to write about, I mean, for lack of better terms, a hero's journey, but take his guns away, take his sword away? You know, how, how do you do it in a, in a different kind of way? Take that whole, you know, thing about the woman as an object, yeah. as his honor, you take that away. Like, how do you write that? Let me, let me ease into, um, or segue into a question that might be related to that. I, I spent a number of years writing stories about slavery and, mm -hmm. and uh, novels about slavery. I'm curious about something. Were you changed emotionally by writing about the experiences of slaves in the 19th century? In other words, was there an emotional cost in dramatizing their lives? And also, were you changed intellectually by what you discovered in your research? That's a great question. Um, 
Doesn't it hurt to sink your imagination into the skin of the enslaved? Um, I would say, weirdly enough, contrary to that, it was a great relief. I, I would say it was actually a great relief. Yeah, there, there were things that perhaps I did not understand, things that I was ashamed of. Um, maybe not at the, at the beginning of, of, of this novel, but certainly at a, in a course of, of my life. Um, you know, I, this was a terrible thing to say, uh, but you know, Kanye West and his, and his whole thing, well, that sounds like a choice. Slavery sounds like a choice, right? It, as dumb as that is, and it's really dumb. <laughs> it's really dumb. Certainly, I have heard African Americans say things like, that would not have happened to me. You know what I mean? Or I would have done X, Y. I could not have been no slave. You know what I mean? C certainly, I have heard people say things. I would have done X, Y, and Z. I would have been like this person over here. And even though the water dancer goes in a certain way, a, a lot of the exploration is why sometimes it's more her heroic not to run. You know, why people would stay. Why... Um, there's a character at one point, for instance, who um, has a situation where he's you know, in love with this woman um, and one of the overseers beats the woman because the woman won't basically sub submit. And the character wants to go off and kill the overseer. And she says, absolutely not. You will do no such thing. Because if you do that, all you're doing is thinking about yourself. You're trying to soothe your own ego. That has nothing to do with me and you. That's got nothing to do with our kids. You know, and, and that's not something I made up. You know what I mean? Like that's in the history. And so a lot of times like, I felt like I was actually able to disentangle a lot of things that maybe had not been presented. I, I felt enlightened. That's the word I'm going for. I felt much, much more enlightened when I was done. It is like purging, right? Mm -hmm. It is like liberation. All right, another question, slavery. This may be obvious. In what ways, if any, does the experience and the rituals in 244 years of slavery speak to the situation of black Americans in 2019? Yeah. In other words, why write about slavery today? Right, right, right. Well, I, I think um, one of the things that became clear to me, uh, um, Like slavery is the, the ultimate of, of, of oppressions. It's you know, being totally robbed of you know, body, mind, everything, being robbed of you know, uh, the fruits of your labor, et cetera. And, and within that, what I found quite shockingly <laughs> was that I, I came to understand other oppressions in a much, much deeper way. I'll give you a very specific example. Um, so one of the things I, I, I tried to do in the book was as much as possible avoid the term slavery it, it pops up, it was even in my reading, but I think I can count on two hands the number of times that I say the word slavery, or slave actually. This is why you said task. Yes, exactly, exactly. So change the name, right? So there's a, a word that I use, the task for slavery and tasked for, for the enslaved. And part of that was understanding what, what it means to be oppressed. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. There is a terminology that has come into use, I would say, I don't know, maybe the past 20 years, where we no longer say rape victim, we say rape survivor, right? I, I, I use those words, but I, I can't tell you I really understood why I was using those. I kind of used them out of respect. You know, people want you to, you know, 
address their experience in a certain way, you say, okay, that's fine, I got that. But I, I can't say I, I completely understood the logic. But when I started writing this, one of the big things I had to get past is you say slavery, and like all of these mental images come into the person's mind. And you may be writing about the period of enslavement, but those mental images may not match the people you're talking about. And so, like, it became clear to me that a crime happens to somebody or some group of people. And that, that's horrible, that's bad. But a lot of times then the society attaches a label to that crime. And then the label becomes a person's identity. And so in that way, they're robbed of their humanity. So someone who's been raped does not want to be that every time you look at them. That makes sense. Just like somebody who's enslaved doesn't want you looking at them and thinking about a whip and chain every time, you know what I mean, you see them. And, and I had to be like really, really careful with that in the book, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do it the other way, slavery becomes a state of being. Mm -hmm. It becomes an essence. Yes. As opposed to something that happened to you exactly. and that can end. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. We'll be back in a moment, but first, Coates says in this talk that he can't imagine a point in American history where slavery becomes irrelevant. If you'd like to hear an expert explore the many ways the legacy of slavery is still felt today, we recommend Sal's upcoming talk with historian and educator Carol Anderson. Anderson is one of the premier scholars of Black American history working today. She will present at Seattle Arts and Lectures on April 15, 2020, to discuss her recent book, one Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. And just for Sal On Air listeners, we have a special promo code that will get you 30% off tickets. Just enter the code Anderson30 at checkout. Now, here's more from ta Coates. What creative challenges did you discover in writing your debut novel? Yeah, you know, it's, it's two different things. I mean, I think like one of the things that happens with nonfiction is you assemble your facts and you're always like hewing to them. But with fiction, there's a moment where you have to just stop. Like you have to say, okay, I've learned as much as I can learn. You put the research in the drawer and then you, you know, you leap off the cliff. Well, I had, to, I mean, you would know better than me, but <laughs> I mean, I had to leap off the cliff. Um, and sometimes I would come back just to make sure, you know, something was correct. Mm -hmm. But it, it, in nonfiction, it's, it's always there. You know, the facts are always there, and you're always checking yourself against the facts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you did 10 years of research. To well, 10 years of writing and research. Writing and research. Yeah, both. Um, which is formidable. It's, it's, a, it's you know, tremendous. You walk out of that experience changed, don't you? Um, yeah, you, I mean, you, 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 you don't come out of it as clean as you went in. I no, 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 absolutely not. I, I, absolutely not. And I think, um, I, was, I was talking about uh, reading Charles uh, when I was at Howard, uh, and, and I told you this behind, backstage. I mean, I, one of the things that I really appreciated about Middle Passage is, uh, for lack of a better term, how it estranged the experiment of, of enslavement by which I mean, I think for a lot of us, when we think of slavery, we think of roots. 
and, that, and that's how the experience exists. And so one of the things that the writer has to tackle is how, how do I make it new? You know what I mean? How do I you know, defy you know, the very concepts that you have in your head? And, and, and I think, and, and I don't know what your inspiration was in that sense, but I, I think for me, one of the things that helped with the research was it, it became new. Like I actually didn't have to make it new. Mm -hmm. But like when I spent enough time with the documents, a lot of my popular perceptions I, I realized were themselves, you know, based on more, you know, latter day 20th century notions. And so I actually felt like I could go back a lot, you know what oh, I mean? And, and there has been a transformation in the interpretation of slavery yes. from the plantation school era right down to that yes. book, uh, I think it's by Stanley Elkins called Slavery, right? Which mm -hmm. interpreted the slave experience in terms of the Holocaust camps. Mm -hmm. We had lots of different readings of slavery because mm -hmm. you got 244 years worth mm -hmm. and that means every possible human experience right. probably happened in 244 years. That's right. Which is, this leads me to the next question, which really... But if I can just, because I think that's a great point too, right? Because if you think about it, you're talking about generations. And so like if you were enslaved in 1619, it's not like being enslaved in 1819, for oh, instance. Oh no, yeah. no, no, absolutely not, because slavery is changing. And that's one of the important parts of your book. The place where they're at is changing. Mm -hmm. The land is dying, it's been overworked. Mm -hmm. And so the slaves are being sold off mm -hmm. one by one during the course of the book. Let, let me segue into one that's gonna be, I think, really important for those people who are interested in Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman has a very significant place in the water dancer. She even seems to be cast in the style of magical realism. Can you talk a little about why you depicted her this way and her significance for us today? So I, I think there were two things going on. I mean, as you can tell from the video, I'm a big old nerd. So you can start, <laughs> you start with the things that actually appealed to me. You know, I, I grew up on, you know, trash, genre fiction, comic books, all of that stuff. And it, it still has an influence. I still write comic books, obviously. So it still has, has a kind of creative hold for, for me. More surprising, again, when I read the literature at the time, the supernatural is always present. Um, the enslaved people themselves, they describe their experiences and they describe their lives in the terms of the supernatural. And so, while on one side, there was my taste, and I felt like, you know, after reading about Harriet Tubman, like, um, I had this desire to do this, like, Obi-Wan sort of thing with her, <laughs> you know? But the, but the flip of that is that, that, it, that it was in the literature, like, it actually was already there, you know? And so in many ways, I felt like that was the fateful way to write about that world, you know? Um, and so it just, just felt like it fit to me, you know? This is very important. Will you continue with novel writing? Do you have in mind a follow-up novel for mm -hmm. The Water Dancer? Or in other words, what new creative projects are you entertaining? I think I'll continue. I think I, think I should continue. Um, I think, um, <laughs> I think, but this might not be for the best of reasons. <laughs> I think, there, obviously, there, there people get upset about fiction and people go back and forth with critiques and that sort of thing. In the world of nonfiction, <laughs> and at this moment, in the world of nonfiction that's written in the era of Twitter, wow. <laughs> so I was 
you know, about three or four years ago, I was writing in two areas where people just got extremely upset, and that was in the world of essays around race and in the world of comic books. <laughs> that, those two reading groups, whoa. I mean, it's serious, it's serious. And I'm not saying people like don't read this and hate it, they do, you know what I mean? You know, people don't read this and don't get angry, I mean, they do. But it is a very different sort of thing, you know? I mean, people like would look at the title between the world and me and get upset. You know, like, <laughs> like that. You know, and so I have to say, um, I enjoyed it creatively because it felt like a much more private process, actually, because it felt like it was all in my head. You know, it didn't feel like as much of an engagement. Um, I probably enjoyed the interactions around it more. And I don't know if that's a good reason to create or not to create. I don't know if that, that actually stands up. But I'm giving you like the truth as I'm processing this right now. Um, I think a lot about our world in terms of politics is not that hard to understand right now. And so, could, could, oh, okay, yeah. Could yeah. You talk sure, about sure, that. Sure, yeah. It, it is tragically easy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it's... Look, I mean, if, 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 <laughs> if you were like me and you were a journalist and an essayist in the era of the first black president, it was like a fascinating, right? So you got this guy, you know what I mean? He's, you know, his, his, his mom is white, dad is black, but dad left, raised in Hawaii you know, but claims, you know, uh, African-American identity, you know, Ivy League, we go straight to Chicago, married to an African-American woman, all of these things coming together, but feels like, you know, uh, as he, you know, said to me, actually, like, white people in Kansas are actually his, I mean, li his literal relatives, but also when he goes there, like, he feels a connection to them. I mean, it, it, you couldn't, like, make this up in literature, right? <laughs> Who would not want to write about that? You know what I mean? Who would not want to live there in all of that, you know, sort of complication and, and, and conflict and everything? I mean, it was a beautiful place to write about. There's nothing complicated about the president right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, I wrote one essay when he got elected and then it was really, I felt like there just hasn't been, anything else I would say would be redundant. <laughs> you know, um, it's not. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. Okay, so the man in the White House, like this is not a really, it just doesn't feel like a really layered story. You know what I mean? Like it feels like he says, this is what I'm gonna do. And that's what he does. And, and I mean, even with the impeachment, I mean, it's, you know, this is not, like there's very little that's actually up for dispute in the same sort of way. Whereas with Obama, he might say, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, and then there would be all this, you know, stuff that you would have to wade through in the best sense. Not like he was lying, but, you know, in the best sense of trying to figure out what was actually going on. It's because he was a civilized man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, no, no. If, if you have an emotional barbarian, this ungrown person who's locked into childhood, then everything's simple. It's all easy. And, um, but, but you see, I think a lot of people out here um, would be thinking along the lines of, okay, we, we have 
Ta-Nehisi Coates here, and he has written brilliantly and deeply about our current situation today. Um, and I don't want you to broach political questions if you don't feel like it, if you'd rather talk about the novel. No, I'm okay, we can talk about whatever, I'm fine. You're okay yeah, with that? Because I know some people rose uh, messages, notes. Um, they want to know, do you think this is a period of hope for us? That, uh, a period of hope for our children, our grandchildren. I got a seven-year-old grandson. You, you have children. You know, yeah, so, so what, this is 29. See, see here's the deal. Here, here's the deal. Um, why write about t slavery in 2019? Mm. Where are we right now? Mm. And where will we go for the rest of this century? Because what's happening right now, I think, is determining where we will go for the rest of this century. And there's yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for me, imagine, for me to imagine a point in American history where, where slavery is irrelevant. Um, and, and I mean that in the most specific terms. Um, slavery birthed this country. It, it, it's in its roots. It's in its, you know, um, like you can't imagine Donald Trump without slavery. Slavery is what makes Donald Trump make sense, you know? Um, the myth which Donald Trump la uh, launched his campaign on was the myth of birtherism. Um, the idea or dressed up notion that African Americans have faced for their entire you know, experience being here. That is go back to Africa. I mean, that's all birtherism is. Go back to Africa. It's really just that simple. It just seems more complicated than that. Um, that idea comes right out of slavery. It comes right out of you know, the, the uh, desire of African-Americans who weren't enslaved here to be free people. It's a response to that. And so it, 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 it's difficult for me to um, imagine talking about America without some reference to slavery. Um, I, I think a lot of people, and I've said this before, a, a lot of people think there's American history and there's this mainstream version of American history and then over here on the side is slavery. Um, but slavery is the river right and running right through it. It is the mainstream, you know? Um, it, it is the thing that birthed everything else, you know, right, right along with the, you know, the, the, the crime of, of, of massive land theft uh, from the Native American population. Without those two things, you, you, you can't really talk about the country. No, 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 it's part of its engraved. Identity. I was just informed that we are approaching that point in our time together where we turn to your questions. So if you have a question for Ta-Nehisi, please write it on a card and pass it to an usher or submit it online using the instructions in your program. So we're going to turn to some of the questions now that people here have brought and, and wanted to raise. Um, yeah, but I, I just want to reiterate something else that, that you just articulated. Um, slavery is there at the onset of the founding of this republic, which was conceived of as a white man's nation mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Not white woman's, white man's nation. So we get the Civil War and all the bloodshed for that to correct the fundamental error and unfinished business of the revolution. But even that didn't correct things because then you go to 60, 70 years of racial segregation, 
right? And then finally we get the Civil Rights Movement, which a lot of people have referred to as being the second chapter, second chapter of the Civil Rights Movement. And that brings us down to when I was in my teens and, and coming of age, right? The, the 60s. But one of the things we now face that is of enormous importance is the browning of America. That is to say, we will have majority populations around the country that are not white, that are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So how will our schools, our society, adjust to that fact? Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, there are uh, a couple ways this, this could go. Um, I think there has been some excitement among progressives specifically uh, for some you know, coming point in this century when you, you basically have a non-white majority in this country. Um, I am one who believes that you should pump the brakes. Um, and I believe you should pump the brakes for two reasons. Uh, and I, I hate, I'm gonna say the hard reason first. <laughs> and I'll say the less hard reason. Um, the hard reason is that there's nothing static about being white in this country. Um, that, the, that the category which we call white right now is filled with ethnic groups who when they first came to this country were not white. Um, this country has moved the lines before when it felt itself to, it, to be in its interests, it will move them again. Now, having said that, this is a very different situation because Italy wasn't at America's border. Ireland wasn't at America's border, so I, I don't know. But that's just a thing I think that should be kept in mind. The second thing, which I said was less hard, but maybe actually more hard, is um, you have a period of maybe 40 or 50 years when you can say this country really was a democracy. Um, and that is the period after the Voting Rights Act, uh, probably up until about five years ago. And I say that because once the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act, as you guys are probably well aware of, state governments in this country began making all sorts of machinations to restrict the right to vote. Is my expectation that that will continue? And then when you paper on top of that, the basic unfairness of the, of the Constitution, the fact that you have a city like Washington, D.C., which has no representation at all, um, and you have you know, uh, states like you know, North Dakota, Idaho, with two senators. So there's a basic fundamental unfairness in how things are apportioned there. The state legislatures are also the folks that are often responsible, or always responsible, for drawing the lines for what the House of Representatives are. It is, I would say, and I hate to be a downer, but if I had to pick, I would say it is just as likely that you're headed into an era of American apartheid, another era of American apartheid, where you actually do have a non-white majority, but there's no reason why we necessarily should expect that to be reflected in our electoral politics. Unless, unless there's a fight. <laughs> unless there's a fight. <laughs> um, now, none of that's written. Doesn't have to happen that way. Doesn't have to happen that way, but I think people who believe that demographics are just going to make this okay don't understand the history of this country. Um, we would have been non-white a long time ago <laughs> had folks not moved the lines. You know what I mean? Whiteness is not a um, coherent, unchanging, inalterable thing. 
It's a political idea. And it's a political idea designed to hold on to power. You know, and so um, I think if we don't rest on our laurels and, and make the assumption that immigration will just solve this for us, that birth rates will just solve you know, this for us, then, then I think we, we, we have a chance, but I think we have to be real about what we're actually facing. Are you familiar with the work, I'm sure you are, George Yancey? George Yancey? I am, yes. Yeah, he's a friend. He has a lot to say about this. <laughs> um, this is from an audience member, and you may have answered it already. What keeps you hopeful? What keeps you hopeful? Where do you draw strength? I don't know, man. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer, you know. Um, <sighs> Being hopeful is not very important to me. Um, it's just not a... Look, I have responsibilities. I have people I owe. <laughs> I have ancestors who slaved so that I could be here. I have a son, I got a wife, I got a mother, I got a father, I got brothers and sisters, I have a community, I have people who I am responsible to. That is probably the biggest thing that keeps me going. Um, and that's not, um, that's not hard either. Like that's not a thing that I, you know, bemoan. It's not a thing that I'm upset about. It's a thing that gives my life meaning. It gives me purpose. I, I don't need to feel like the sun will come up tomorrow. I don't need to feel like everything will ultimately be okay. Um, my life is about the commitments I've made and fulfilling those commitments. And it, 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 um, I don't know what to say except that I am tremendously honored um, to be a part of that community, to have those commitments, to not feel like uh, I am among the people in this world that are trying to push the earth over the ledge, to feel like at least that I'm among those who are trying to keep it from going over the ledge. That's really all I ask. Now, now what happens after that, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I'm not in control of, but if I can do the work of being able to wake up in the morning, look myself in the face, look my wife in the face, look my son in the face, look my parents in, in the face, think about my ancestors, feel like they would be proud about the path I'm walking, then I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. Um, another audience question, um, taking it back to the novel, which character besides Hiram was the hardest or most interesting one to write? Um, his quote-unquote love interest, Sophia, was the hardest. Um, and that goes back to our, our initial conversation about how, like, this war for aesthetics, um, because what I was saying, you know, just once again, just to go back to this is, it's not just that General Lee won the War of Aesthetics, or Nathan Bedford Forrest won the War of Aesthetics, that they're what gets depicted as glamorous and beautiful and gallant. It's all the things that go with that that are problematic. So in this case, it's the position of women and where women exist in these sorts of stories. And so it was quite clear when I was writing this that you, you, you can't just take all of the tropes and then rewrite them. Like you can't, for lack of a better term, you can't take white mythology and paint it black. You know, you have to, you gotta make something new. 
you gotta try them. I don't know how I did that, but you gotta try. You have to make an attempt at making something new. I mean, you know, it's one of the things, not to go too hard on this, but you know, it's one of the things like you see black exploitation. And a lot of black exploitation is, you know, basically adopts the assumptions of the society and just sort of paints it black. And for me, what I was at least trying to do was engage with that, not create this kind of macho, swaggering hero, but, but, but try to make something that, that, that was different and, and, and new. And so a large part of that was his relationship to love and the relationship with you know, the people that he loved. And so then you gotta ask a lot of hard questions about the, you know, where the women are and you know, what are their interests and what are their needs and what are their, their wants. And in that sense, that, that probably was the thing between myself and my editors that we spent the most time you know, trying to get to. That's fascinating. I gotta ask one question because it comes up, I had it, but it comes up from somebody in the audience too about the difference between writing, well you already talked about the difference between writing um, journalism mm -hmm. and fiction, but what about writing um, for graphic novels and comics? Yeah. Well, you have, once you, in comic books, you have the great aid of an artist. <laughs> and you can just say, this is what they see, and then the artist draws it. You don't have that in fiction. <laughs> so every, you know what I mean? Like you got to really paint the scene, man. You know, that, probably, that, that is by far the biggest difference. Yeah. That was the biggest difference. What was the, I don't know if I asked you this before, the hardest challenge then, technically, craft-wise, with the novel? What, what was the most oh, That's difficult? a great question. Was um, it description? Was it characterization? Was it plotting? Was it? I think it was confidence. Confidence? I think it was confidence. I think it was totally confidence. And not like confidence, like I think I can do this, but getting into a place where you felt like you believed you were in that world and then just writing mm -hmm. like that. And if I'm honest with you, I probably struggle with that down to the end. Um, it's it's kind of why I'm anxious to do another one because I feel like, okay, I, I got my feet under me now. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'll, I'll, I know when I know the world and then I'm good. But getting to that point, because like, and I think this is true in all writing, like you really want, like the writer has to be confident. You know, the writer has to be, you know, the writers, you know, I tell my kids at NYU when I'm teaching, like imagine yourself as like a guide, like a forest ranger. And your readers have come for this tour of, you know, the national park where you're a forest ranger. They don't want a forest ranger that gets lost. And, you know, all of us have read books where we felt like the forest ranger was lost, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so getting to that point where I felt like, okay, this is over here, this is over there, I know why this is here, this is there, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, very clear about what's going on, that, that was probably the hardest thing. Do you know what the subject will be that you would approach or broach for the next novel? I do. You do? Yeah, I do. Wait, wait, wait. wait what is it? It would be... <laughs> Yako, tell me. Um, um, I, I, the way I think about it is actually a sequel to Between the World and Me. And that's all I'll say. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> you whet some appetites with that one. All right, very good. Um, maybe we'll do another audience question. Some of these are very, very political. Is that okay? That's fine. Can I ask you um, anything? Hmm? You can ask me anything. I guess. Oh, this is cool. Um, what is the work from the audience white people need to do to bring the shame up 
and out and to face and repair slavery personally and institutionally. You said white people? Yes. Mm. I mean, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a big believer in shame. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big believer in shaming white people. Um, if somebody white reads my work and feels ashamed, uh, I get it, but I, I don't write with that intent. Um, I think shame is kind of useless. Um, I think feeling bad is beside the point. Um, if you got your foot on my neck, I would like you to remove your foot from my neck. Um, <laughs> Let me slide another question like that one. Yeah, yeah sure. Right under. Uh, what do you recommend white people do to reconstruct their understanding of race in America? Wow, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know what? I can tell you what I as a black person have done. Um, and... Ah, I know how I'll take this. Because I think if you think about it like this, the basic relationship between black and white people is not mystical, um, is a relationship between one group that is oppressed and one group that has been oppressed. And that is not particularly original. It's not even original in, in American society. What I'll tell you that I try to do when I'm in that situation, when I find, you know, uh, say, you know, myself having to think about gender, for instance, or having to think about sexuality. Probably a thing I try to do the most of, and I don't know how effective this is, but I try to listen as much as I can and talk as little as I can. <laughs> and um, you'd be shocked how much you get that. You know, I think about like going back to this thing about like rape survivor, right? Like there's a kind of person that says, well, I don't understand that, so let's debate the fact that you want to use the term rape survivor. And let's go back and forth about that. But maybe you should just use the term and just let it turn over in your head for a little while. <laughs> like maybe you should just accept it. Maybe you should say, okay, this person has an experience. That experience uh, is more than what I had and I should not force them to say it in a language that makes it comprehensible to me. Maybe I should just... <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, I don't get it right now. And it's okay that I don't get it right now. But maybe if I continue to walk down the path, I will. I will, and, and, and that's fine. That's totally, totally fine. I think um, debate in this society is often very, very overrated. Um, and I think listening is deeply, deeply underrated. We have time for one more question, and it's gonna be mine. And, uh, <laughs> this man is on a seven-week book tour. This is week four. Week four, yeah. And those book tours are hard, believe me. So my question is, what's it like right now to be Ta-Nehisi Coates? Wow. I mean, it's pretty normal. <laughs> um, my, my wife is up here. She's not in the audience. She's back at the hotel. Um, I'm going to take her out to dinner after this. <laughs> and that'll be fun. 
I hope I've never been to the restaurant where we're going, so you've been put on notice. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> it's fine. And then I'll go to another city tomorrow. Um, call my son tomorrow, see how he's doing. It's pretty ordinary. It's actually really, really, for me, it's pretty ordinary. Um, getting back to this whole thing about names and labels, you know, there are a lot of people here to see this book, and, and that's beautiful, and the writer part of me is very, very proud of that, and I'm very happy about that, and we've had very, very nice crowds, and the book, you know, is doing pretty well, but that's not who I am. And that really hasn't changed, you know, like who I am. You know, the, the basic facts of me, you know, got a 19-year-old son, I've been with my wife for 21 years, I got mother, father, I mean, those things don't change. Those are just true, you know, brothers and sisters that I have, you know, those things are just true. That's who I am, and so, um, it probably feels as ordinary to be me as it feels to be you. <laughs> um, there's not, there's not my, I mean, this is great. I don't want to talk down the, the, the significance of this. It's, it's, it's huge. But I think I would be in a lot of trouble if this became who I was. That, that's beautiful. And this book is actually a lot about family. It really emphasizes family and art. Please thank Ta-Nehisi Coates for thank being you. with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Ta-Nehisi Coates for joining us on the Sal stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lecture staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us so that more people can enjoy Sal On Air.